Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 317, Athelred, A Culture of Corruption. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Lars, Julie, and Stephen for signing up already. At 16 years old, King Athelred was considered fully grown by Anglo-Saxon standards. And as a bonus graduation present, the powerful Bishop Athelwald of Winchester, the man who appears to have been the de facto head of state while Athelred was a child, had died. With his passing, the power of the old guard had been broken, and Athelred was free to rule as a king. The regency period of his reign was officially over. And it looks like his first move was to get married. Hormones, am I right? Now, the truth is, we aren't given a specific date for this marriage. In fact, we don't know very much about the marriage in general. We don't even know the name of the bride. Now, later historians writing during the Norman period claim that she was Alf Gifu, the daughter of Elderman Thored of York. And if that account is right, that might be a really big pairing, because it appears that Thored was the son of the exiled and beloved Elderman of Northumbria, Oslak. And so marrying his daughter would be a smart move politically. But we don't have any contemporary records naming her, nor her lineage. So it's impossible to know for sure that this is what happened. And that silence is a big deal. The fact that there are no contemporary accounts even listing her name is kind of crazy. Because it means that we don't have a record of her witnessing a charter or even a record of her getting crowned. There's nothing. Politically, she was a non-entity. And that marks a significant change, because for the last couple decades, witnessing charters have become pretty common for the wife of the king, thanks in large part to the queen mother, Elfthrith. But this practice disappeared once Athelred was fully in power. And under his rule, the king's wife doesn't appear to have been crowned at all. Her station was pushed so far into the margins that I can't even tell you how many kids they had together, nor precisely which kids were theirs. And there were other changes coming to the court under Athelred's new management. He constructed a new privy council, which was basically an in-crowd of the in-crowd. And to be honest, that was probably the least surprising thing to have happened in the entire reign of King Athelred. I mean, if you think about it, he was a 16-year-old boy who had spent his life being heavily managed by either his mother or by a group of old-ass nobles who were chosen by his father and older brother. So once he had a free hand... Of course he did what many teenagers tend to do. He stopped listening to his mom and his dad's work buddies, and he started trusting his own friends instead. And legend has it that if you bring a can of Axe body spray to the Cambridge Library and stand close enough to the charters from this era, you can still hear him saying, God, Mom, I know what I'm doing. So overnight, a new group of nobles has taken center stage in English politics. And they were people that King Athelred personally selected. Elderman Elfrich of Hampshire, his son Reeve Elfgar, Thane Agel Siga, and Bishop Wolfgar of Ramsey. These nobles would serve in the critical role of advising the king and help him carry out his duties in the kingdom. And Athelred had some pretty heavy duties. 
You see, at his coronation in 979, Athelred would have undergone the same ceremony as his brother. It actually would have been highly similar, if not identical, to the ceremony that had been designed by St. Dunstan during the reign of Athelred's father, King Edgar. And it's this same ceremony that's passed mostly intact down to us today. And because of this, we can be reasonably certain that King Athelred would have promised, quote, three things to the Christian people and my subjects. First, that God's church and the Christian people of my dominions hold true peace. The second is that I forbid robbery and all unrighteous things to all orders. The third, that I promise to enjoin in all dooms justice and mercy, end quote. So Athelred swore to the English people and to God that he would work to ensure that there is peace, order, and justice in England. And as far as crowd-pleasing promises go, that's pretty good. However, they also did present the king with some pretty significant challenges especially with that last one, the promise to enjoin in all dooms justice and mercy. A doom is a law. So what he was promising to do was to enforce all laws in a manner that balanced justice and mercy. Or in American terms, he was promising to faithfully execute the laws. That's actually a vitally important aspect for all forms of governance, medieval and modern. You see, writing laws, which is something that Athelred would do a great deal of, was only half the work. If you're going to govern a country, you need to actually execute those laws. And I'm going to explain this to you the way that it was explained to me back when I was a young law student taking criminal procedure. My professor at the time was a former federal prosecutor, and his jurisdiction was in Brooklyn, which meant that this class was a lot more fun to take than just about any other subject I had in my training. It was like learning from a legal superhero. This guy had prosecuted mob bosses. He took down a major cocaine kingpin. His stories were endless. And on one of the first days of the class, he paused in the middle of describing a case and asked us a question. How much marijuana would you have to have on your person in order to be indicted with possession with the intent to distribute in Brooklyn? Now, this was before smartphones, so there's no Googling it. Instead, we all just started throwing out guesses. An eighth, a quarter. This was a law class, but it also was in Portland, so there were some pretty specific options that were being thrown out. And he let this go on for about a minute, because law professors are sadists. And then he told us the answer. In order to be indicted with possession of marijuana with the intent to distribute in the city of Brooklyn, you'd have to be caught with a ton of it. Literally, one ton. As in, you'd need an actual truckload of that OG Kush before he bother busting you for intent to distribute. And this was hilarious for us to hear. And it's still hard for me to believe, even though right now I'm recording this about five blocks away from a dispensary just over a decade later. But the story has a point. What my professor was teaching us was the difference between law in theory and law in practice. New York federal prosecutors were dealing with criminal organizations who were peddling cocaine, crack, and heroin. There was big money behind these operations, and with big money came mob bosses and murders. This was a literal gangland that they had to handle. So by necessity, these prosecutors needed to triage their operation. Some dude getting stoned, even really stoned, just didn't rank all that high when New York City was clocking just under five murders a day. And that meant that weed was functionally decriminalized, 
even though no legislation had actually been passed to make it legal. For the law to truly be the law, it's not enough to just write it down. Someone has to be willing to enforce it. That professor, by the way, had only just returned back to teaching. See, just one year after he became a professor, he got called up by the Justice Department and put in charge of one of their investigations into Enron, the infamous Project Braveheart. And in it, he indicted several of their executives and wrapped that up right before our semester started. I really lucked out when it came to professors. Anyway, that lesson that he taught me, which I now passed on to you, is critical to understanding this period of the Anglo-Saxons. Laws only exist when you enforce them. And that connection was breaking down in the kingdom of the English. Early in Athelred's reign, the enforcement of the law wasn't a guarantee, and it largely came down to whether or not the Regency Council decided to follow through. And every time that they declined, King Athelred was failing to keep his oath to enjoin in all dooms justice and mercy. Then, once Athelred was ruling independently, he struggled to keep this promise for another reason. He was politically weak. He may have made himself a new council full of his new friends, but it's clear that he managed this coup mostly through luck. He hadn't actually ousted the powerful figures of the Witan that formed his old council. No. Instead, he had to wait until they died, and then just chip away at their remaining power from the margins by replacing them with people he selected. There's only one exception to this, just one person who appears to have been directly ousted, and that was his mom. Every other figure of that powerful inner circle just aged out of their position. And when kicking your mom out of your room is your main show of strength, that's not the sign of a strong king. And looking at the witness lists, most of the peripheral nobles who were there in those early days still remained at court which meant that the factionalism and the power struggles that the Regency Council were dealing with became struggles that King Athelred inherited directly. Consequently, the decision on whether or not to enforce a law was likely made not on the law itself, but by considering the pleasure or wrath of any of the powerful nobles that moved in the English halls of power. And as you might expect, if a powerful noble didn't want a particular law to be enforced at a particular time, it wouldn't be. We repeatedly see Athelred shirking his responsibility to uphold justice in his own lands. And it doesn't just stop there. Laws were also starting to fall by the wayside due to the king's own preferences. Specifically, he was inclined to let you get away with a surprising amount of stuff, so long as the two of you were friends. And that doesn't just cause weakness in the laws themselves, it also creates political ruptures. We will see Athelred repeatedly siding with less powerful dynasties and legal disputes, and moving against more powerful dynasties. And this certainly doesn't look like evidence that Athelred was using the law codes to undercut powerful dynasties and pass their power on to lesser nobles who were likely to be indebted and thus loyal to the crown. And I will point out a few of those moments as we go forward, but I want this in your head when you're thinking about the reign of Athelred, because this just like the issue of power, is critical for understanding the administration of justice and mercy in England. Athelred may have promised to enforce the laws justly, but that promise didn't exist in a vacuum. And while it might be tempting to simply label him as morally compromised and lacking in character, and honestly, I think he probably was, that still doesn't tell the full story. Athelred doesn't just break his promise to the kingdom. He repeatedly breaks it in the same ways 
over and over again. There's a pattern to it. And behind this pattern are the incentives and structures that made up English governance, an English governance that was starting to fail. And the members of the Witan knew what we know, that leaders aren't all powerful, magical beings, but instead, they're people who are subject to influence. And the weaker the leader, the more likely they can be manipulated. And Athelred was very, very weak. So, imagine that you're an unscrupulous noble in the 10th century of England, right at about the same time where Athelred turns 16 and comes into his own tepid power. You'd be like a kid in a candy shop, wouldn't you? Because so long as the king was unwilling to punish you, either because he was afraid to or because he liked you, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. You would be above the law. And this is, and always has been, a recipe for corruption. And in the case of England, that temptation for corruption goes doubly for the king's inner circle, because they were tasked with helping him mete out justice. So providing the king had their back, who could stop them? And this temptation was made worse by the fact that they were not even constrained anymore by Bishop Athelwald. And that was a big deal, because Bishop Athelwald, for all his faults, doesn't appear to have been an openly corrupt person. I don't think that he's someone that I would like having a beer with, and I also don't think he'd approve of my politics, my haircut, or pretty much anything I've ever done or said. Furthermore, I'm not all that impressed by his thoughts and prayers approach to Vikings. The kingdom clearly needed ships, not scribes. But he does appear to have been, at least more or less, a man that believed in law and order. And his hand very well might have been the thing that steadied the tiller on the kingdom through the rapid succession of kings in the middle of the 10th century. But with the death of Athelwald, that hand was gone. And this new inner council had the tiller for the kingdom. And they also had something else. The properties that were owned by the bishop. His wealthy holdings of Abingdon Abbey and Oldminster. The only person who could really challenge them was the abbot of Abingdon. But then, as luck would have it for the council, he died a couple months later. That meant that these assets were now as up for grabs as they had ever been. And you better believe that that inner council noticed. And none so much as the king's new chief counselor, Elderman Alfrich of Hampshire. So Elderman Alfrich met with Bishop Wolfgar of Ramsey. And together, they started plotting. Getting their hands on the abbey wouldn't be easy. It turned out that King Athelred's father, King Edgar, had granted Abingdon Abbey free elections. And that meant that even though Bishop Athelwald and Abbot Oscar were dead, King Athelred couldn't just go and appoint a successor. Instead, the monks of the abbey would vote on who the next abbot would be. It was a right that they were guaranteed by law. But Elfrich and Bishop Wolfgar had an ace up their sleeve. You see, the person that put that law in place was King Edgar, and King Edgar was dead. King Athelred, on the other hand, wasn't. So, Elderman Elfrich went to Athelred and told him that Edwina, who was Elfrich's brother, should be the new abbot of Abingdon. And he also added that he would be happy to give King Athelred a boatload of cash as a thank you for this. And King Athelred liked boatloads of cash. So, despite the rule barring it, the king appointed Edwina as the abbot of Abingdon. And with that, the king, who was just barely out of his regency, had his first bribery scandal. They grew up so fast. Now, Abbot Adwina and Elderman Elfrich immediately went about looting the abbey's lands for any and all wealth that they could collect or divvy out to their followers. 
this was a bonanza. And as for the monks of the abbey, well, they were left to fend for themselves on whatever was left. Meanwhile, King Athelred, in a moment of royal FOMO, seized some of the remaining estates at Abington and Old Minster for himself, and he granted other portions of Bishop Athelwald's lands to some of his favorite thanes, including Elderman Elfrich's son, Reeve Elfgar. So this family were making out like bandits, because they were basically bandits. And it reminds me of a common proverb that you might have heard. A fish rots from the head down. There's an older version, a fish begins to sink at the head, that can actually be traced back to at least the 13th century. And what this saying means is that when something begins to fail, you can usually trace the failure back to leadership. The folk wisdom here might be onto something. If a law isn't enforced, then functionally, there is no law. And who has the power to enforce the laws? Leadership. I mean, there was a law here for how succession at the abbey was supposed to happen. But that law was simply ignored, and the monks' right to elect their next abbot was traded away by their own king for a bunch of cash. And they could do nothing about it. Nor could they do anything about the subsequent ransacking of their livelihood, because the leadership approved of what was happening. And I'm telling you about this event in particular because it marks a sudden shift in the crown's behavior. Starting here in 984 and continuing for about six years, we see the crown frequently seizing lands from religious institutions and then issuing them by charter to favored lay people in the king's orbit. And the family of Elfrich, in particular, became wildly successful thanks to all these gifts. And at about the same time as all of this, we also see a new coinage appearing. Scholars refer to it as a second-hand type coin. And the appearance of these coins signaled a return to the centralized production and distribution of dyes. Dyes being the stamps that are used to make coins. And centralization of minting is nearly always a sign of power consolidation. And this move would have benefited Athelred and his inner circle. Not just as a symbolic demonstration of their monopoly on power, but also because, very simply, they would have directly profited off the production of the coins themselves. The king and his friends were wielding the ship of state to make money. Lots of money. And they were making it in creative and often technically criminal ways. But who cares? It's not like they're about to enforce these laws on themselves. And as irony would have it, in 985, at Bromden, King Athelred likely issued his first law code. And it wouldn't be his last. During his reign, Athelred will produce an astounding number of laws. He actually appears to have loved laws, or at least having them written down on paper. Enforcing those laws? Well, that would depend on the circumstances. And the thing about corruption is, while it's never good, one of the things that makes it so dangerous is that it never seems to stay in one place. The real trouble with corruption is that it becomes a culture. It spreads and infects other people and other institutions. We tend to be slow to realize this on a societal level, but we've known for quite a long time how this works as it relates to money. It's most commonly referred to as Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law was named after Queen Elizabeth I's financier, but the concept itself can be traced back at least as far as the writings of Aristophanes in the 5th century BCE. And what Gresham's Law tells us is that bad money drives out good money. So, as an example, 
If a government allows counterfeit currency to exist in circulation alongside its own genuine currency, then Gresham's Law says that eventually the counterfeit money will become the most common currency. Now why? Well, if counterfeit money is being used without any consequences, then at a certain point, there's no incentive to not use counterfeit money. You might as well get that printer out and get to work. Because at a certain point, if you're resisting it, then you're just a sucker. This dynamic plays out again and again in the history of money. It's why, even though we're only in the 10th century, we've already had multiple instances in the BHP where coins became so debased that monarchs had to cancel the previous coinage and issue a new currency. And it tends to start with just a few shady people making their own coins with cheaper metals, or getting genuine coins and just shaving the edge off of them. But if those norms are broken without consequences, then it's not too long before more people start joining in. And then there are more coins made out of cheaper metal. And then more. Counterfeiting without consequence seems to trigger an inverted sense of fairness. Where, because the rules are being openly flaunted, suddenly following the rules feels unfair. Because you're at a disadvantage relative to everyone else. For no other reason than honor. And you can't eat honor. So that's Gresham's Law. But this isn't something that only exists with currency. If you're playing a game and some of the players start breaking the rules but aren't getting penalized for that, pretty soon, others are going to follow suit simply to keep up. If you're on the road and everyone's driving 5 miles per hour over the speed limit, you're probably going to match their speed. If you were in college in the late 90s, did you go to Tower Records, or did you get on Napster like everyone else? We see this all over the place. And it's such a common experience that even children will say, but everybody's doing it when they're trying to get out of trouble. And it's notable that throughout the later 10th century, the charters are packed with references to criminal offenses. It's clear that England was dealing with a lot of criminal behavior. But as far as the enforcement side of it goes, well, the king and his council seem to have had their own motivations there. And so enforcement seems to have been capricious at best likely heavily motivated by the self-interest of the individuals who are handing out the judgment. And, as Athelred began to make his first foray into legislation, he was also moving to break the last remaining vestige of the old guard. Do you remember Elfrich Childe of Mercia? Not Elfrich of Hampshire, who was the king's bestie, but Elfrich Childe, who was Bishop Athelwald's friend, and the guy who took over the Eldermancy of Mercia when Elfhera died. Well, at the Watanagamot in early 985, quite possibly the same Watanagamot where Athelred's first law code was issued, Elderman Alfred Child of Mercia was exiled, quote, by the unanimous legal counsel and most just judgment of the bishops, eldermen, and all the magnates of the kingdom, end quote. And this was due to the, quote, many and unheard of crimes against God and my royal rule, end quote. So did he catch that? He was exiled for treason. His lands were then seized, and he was sent packing, never to be heard from again. Now, as for what that treason was, well, the record is silent. The scribes apparently don't want to say, which has raised more than one eyebrow over the centuries. But historian Levi Roach suggests that Elfrich Childe was being punished because he opposed the king's new inner council. This exiling may have been the last cannon in the battle between the old guard and this new group of nobles. There's a good chance that Elfrich Childe miscalculated his power in court. And you can see why. 
Just a couple short years ago, he was a close ally of Bishop Athelwald and the rest of the Regency Council. He was part of a group that had been supporting the king since he was just a 10-year-old athling. And on top of that, he commanded one of the most powerful territories in England, Mercia. Mercia was such a powerful territory that under Elderman Alfhera, his predecessor, it was practically operating as an independent kingdom and forming alliances with foreign kings and engaging in foreign wars on its own behalf. Mercia had started to regain its old shine. And from the looks of it, the old kingdom was still allied with the rising star of Wales, King Hul of Gwyneth. So as the head of this region, Elderman Alfred Child might have believed he had the power to stand against this new band of royal councillors who were looting the lands at Abington, Winchester, and God knows where else. But he miscalculated. And now he was on a ship, bound for somewhere, with his land seized, his access to royal power utterly demolished, and as for his title, the Elderman of Mercia, well, it sat dormant. It wasn't passed to Elfrich Child's son, nor to anyone else. It appears that King Athelred wasn't keen to give himself a Mercian challenger. But of course, Mercia still did need to be governed, and it looks like that task was passed to, you guessed it, a member of Athelred's new privy council, a man named Thane Athelsiga. The king's friends were consolidating power, and I suspect they were also crushing any threats to their supremacy. Meanwhile, in Gwyneth, King Hule was preparing his next move. He consolidated power in northern Wales, and then extended that power through Powys and down into the southeastern kingdoms. He was ready for his next move. And then suddenly, on the same year that Elderman Elfrich Child of Mercia was exiled for treason, and a member of the king's new inner circle took control of Mercia, we're told that King Hul of Gwyneth, the ally of Mercia, was killed by the English. Gee, I wonder what happened there. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and please go and join our communities. You can find links to all of them in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com.